You're listening to the CD Baby. CD Baby. CD Baby DIY Musician Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to episode number 141 of the CD Baby DIY Musician Podcast. My name is Kevin Bruner, your host for the show, and here with us at CD Baby, we have Gretchen Peters. When Gretchen first moved to Nashville, she didn't want to end up being an artist that was forced to record other songwriters' songs. So instead of pursuing a record deal, she set out to prove herself as a songwriter first and landed a publishing deal. When Martina McBride recorded Gretchen's song Independence Day, which also became a smash hit, Gretchen's songwriting talents were in high demand. Since that time, Gretchen has released five solo albums and has set out to continue to build a career on her own terms. So uh, let's get to my interview with Gretchen Peters. Joining me here at CD Baby is Gretchen Peters. Gretchen, it's great to have you. It's crazy good to be here and finally see what goes on. Yes, you're, you're see, look behind the curtain and all the magic it's that the, happens. It's the real place, yeah. <laughs> and uh, Portland's doing its best to, to give you some nice sunny weather. Oh my God, I know. I think y'all are lying about the rain. But it's, it's, it's just a myth to keep people from wanting to move <laughs> here. So, Yeah. So it's uh, it's awesome to have you here. You have been nominated for multiple Grammys, CMA Song of the Year, all sorts of uh, accolades for your songwriting and your artistry. And uh, right now you're in Portland because you're on a train tour. I am. Um, I'm. We're starting in Portland, and we are going from Portland through all down the West Coast to L.A., um, doing the last leg of Fred Eaglesmith's transcontinental train tour, which is put on by a great company called Roots on the Rails, who does these tours on trains all over uh, North America, really. I've done one in Canada, and there's one that went went uh, down in Mexico uh, a couple of years ago, and they're really fun. They're kind of like the music cruises, only think of a music cruise on a train, and we have a train car that's completely dedicated to being a venue and you're you know you buy a ticket to ride on the train and you get to go to a concert every night how does the venue fit on the train that's well it's interesting (laughs) shall i say it uh it's a bit if if the tracks are rough it can be a slightly hazardous you know with what with you know mic stands and teeth and you know movement you know but um but it all works out they they kind of just you know put put this the stage at one end of a car one of the bigger cars and they set up a sound system and everything and people are sitting in the seats and um needless to say there's there are size limitations to the audience but i think they have somewhere between depending on the train they have somewhere between 40 and 50 people that ride the whole whole train and they get a different uh different kind of you know different band uh playing every night um, I think on this train that we're doing, we're doing the last leg, but there, but John Fulbright's been on it uh, from, I think, the New York to Chicago leg and some other artists. So they kind of get something different every night. And then there's, you know, like the, one of the nights we're going to do a little sort of guitar pull where everybody kind of joins in and hmm. all kinds of things happen. It's lots of fun. It sounds like fun. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, the scenery from Portland to L.A. on the train is just going to be yeah. spectacular. Yeah. How many days will it take to get down? Just two days. Just two we days. get on the we get on the uh, train in Portland tomorrow, 
And we ride to L.A. and we're, I think we're in L.A. at like 9 o'clock at night the next night. Hmm. Wow. Well, it sounds like a, a, a lot of fun. And how did you get hooked up with something like that? Well, I did the first train, um, I think it was in 2005 with Tom Russell, who has been doing these, um, these train things for quite a while. And I think, you know, we, we sort of just felt right at home with the roots on the rails folks, the, the crew who really runs these things. They're just really awesome people. And, um, we kind of fell in with them and, and just, I think it, you know, you have to kind of be game for, I mean, you're on a train with these people for days at a time. You, you're not just, coming into a venue and doing a show and leaving. Yeah. So you kind of have to be game for hanging. Yeah. You know, that's part of the deal. And we just, um, we had such a good time doing it. I think we, the, luckily they asked us back. <laughs> well, that sounds, that sounds like a really cool way to see the country and hang with your fans. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your career? Like, you know, the brief Gretchen Peters bio and and uh, kind of where you're at and then we can dive into some questions about uh, songwriting sure. and about uh, just uh, what you've been up to well I sort of cut my musical teeth I guess um, when I was a teenager in Colorado I grew up in New York until I was about 13 and and then my mom and I when my my parents got divorced. We moved to Boulder, Colorado, and it was really a musical place. It was the seventies. It was, there were, you know, indie bands everywhere. People were, I mean, that was where I was sort of introduced to the concept of original music, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and, and where, where it dawned on me that maybe I could write my own songs instead of just singing other people's. And I lived there for, um, you know, until I was in my 20s and I realized I had to move to a music center, you know, and I didn't know whether, you know, to move to New York or L.A. or or Nashville. But at the time, um, Nashville was going through some it was in a rather experimental stage, let's say um, they were they were signing artists like Lyle Lovett and Steve Earle and Nancy Griffith. And I was kind of a folky. So I thought maybe this is going to be the best fit for me. And I moved uh, to town, not really having any knowledge of the concept of, you know, a songwriter who sits in a, an office like this mm-hmm. and writes songs for other people. Like that wasn't even something I knew existed uh-huh. because I grew up on singer songwriters. You know, I, I modeled myself after Paul Simon and Joni Mitchell and Leonard Cohen and, people like that. And then later on, um, you know, Graham Parsons and Rodney Crowell and people like that. But I got to Nashville and there was this whole, you know, do you want to be a singer? Do you want to be a songwriter? What do you want to be? Like I had to choose, you know, (laughs) and I thought that was bizarre, but I fit the one thing I, I think I realized early on is that if I were going to try to get a record deal and be an artist, I had to prove that I could write or they would make me sing whatever they wanted me to sing Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, I just thought at least I have to prove my, my worth as a writer. So I sought a publishing deal before a record deal. I just started looking for a publisher and found one pretty quickly. And really I, I think, you know, my success from that point on as a songwriter was more a surprise to me than anybody. I mean, I really, never expected um, to have so much success with other artists recording my songs. I was just really writing what I wanted to write Mm -hmm. and things that I thought that I might want to record too. Um, 
but you know the sort of the first you know first brick in the wall so to speak you know was was the first song that I got recorded which was recorded by George Jones and that was pretty big you know George Jones king of country music you know <laughs> I thought okay well this is you know this is working and it was just sort of one after another um and I became known as a songwriter much to my surprise and um finally after about I don't know, almost, um, you know, eight or nine years, um, I got a record deal uh, based on, I think, my success as a writer and just the fact that I had never stopped performing. And um, and my demos were really kind of attempts to make records. You know, I always went sort of above and beyond with my song demos. And um, my first record came out in 1996. And I sort of took off in the independent direction with my second record, when my first one didn't really take off, mm-hmm. I kind of, that was kind of a light bulb moment for me when I realized, you know, the most important thing for an artist is, is to be in control of their career. Mm-hmm. And the only way to do that is to own your masters, be able to, you know, I mean, sink or swim with your own faith in yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so from my second record on, I was an independent artist who owned, I never gave anything else away and I was lucky enough incredibly lucky that my first record label were uh, stand-up guys and when the record label went under they gave me my master's back so I own I own all my own records which is pretty unusual for someone who started that that long ago Mm -hmm. yeah it is Um, lots of questions for you on several of the things you said Uh, go back a little bit to uh, talking some about what you were doing as when you were writing you got a publishing deal Mm mm-hmm uh, like you mentioned, a lot of that world is unknown to folks. I'm sure a lot of yeah. artists listening haven't really heard much about it. It's it's kind of if you're not in Nashville or certain parts of L.A. or New York, you really don't encounter it all that often. Right. But it's a huge force behind the industry. What was what was your day to day like, and, and what was you know what was your deal with the publishing company? Well, the first publishing deal I got, you know, they they paid me a. a starvation wage, (laughs) uh, which is really an advance. It's not even a wage. It's an advance. But just enough to keep you... The idea was it was just enough money to keep you from having to spend all your energy trying to survive. In other words, here's not very much money, but you can feed your baby, you know. Um, And uh, in order to give you enough breathing room to write songs. And... My reaction initially, because no one had ever paid me to write songs, my reaction initially was, I better show up at the office every day, you know, like (laughs) as if that were, you know, because it was a job. Um, Luckily, I had a very wonderful and um, empathetic and really perceptive publisher who finally just took me aside one day and said, you know, if you need to like get in your car and go drive to Florida in order to write a song, then that's what you need to do. But you certainly don't need to show up here every day. Basically, they just wanted me to write songs and turn them in. And then they would in turn take them and we would demo them. We would make a a presentable demo. um, And then they would pitch them to singers uh, and to record labels, to A&R people. And I have to say, back then, this was this was 1987. Um, back then, it was more straightforward in the sense that you know you didn't have to be connected to the artist or to the label or to the producer. 
in a way that's uh, more so today is the rule. I mean, you didn't have to be sort of, there's a lot more situations in publishing and song pitching and song plugging today where the writers sort of are in a little group Mm -hmm. with this producer and this artist and maybe they write together and maybe they all collaborate and Nashville was kind of wonderful back then in the sense that a really great song, no matter where it came from, had just as much of a shot uh, at landing on a, you know, multi-platinum selling record as any other song. Mm -hmm. And it didn't matter, you know, who came up with it. It was really made the best song win. And I I have to say that was, I didn't realize it at the time, but it was a golden, it was a golden era Mm -hmm. uh, for, for songs. And I think it led to a really great time in the 90s for country music when there were great songs that that really were some of them kind of edgy and and um you know not just straight down the middle what you would expect and i i felt uh i got my share of those i i wrote those kind of songs i wrote i always think of it as you know like i wrote the song that an artist like Trisha Yearwood or Faith Hill would want to have one of those songs on her record, but maybe not 12 of them, you know, but I was the one that wrote that one. And, and I, I had a shot at that and yeah. I, and I, and I landed those spots on those records uh, quite a few times. And I don't think that's so possible anymore. Mm-hmm. I think it's changed a lot since then. So when you said you had to turn in a song, what were they, what did you have to give them? Um, I would make a little, what I would call a work tape. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, when I got done with a song, I would sit in my room with a tape recorder and just put it down, just me and the guitar, you know, or me and the piano. And it was just a very bare bones, you know, and then here's the lyric and here's the song, here's mm-hmm. the tape. And then we together with the, the publisher and I would decide, um, which songs were worthy of being demoed, you know, with a full band. And my husband who's sitting over here, uh, to my left, Barry Walsh played on my played piano on my second set of demos, I think, and I never uh, played with another piano player after that. <laughs> Sparks so he, just flew. He started he started playing on the on my demos in 1990, I guess. And wow. um, but you know he would be part of a band that would we'd come in and we'd take four or five songs, you know, in and a day in the studio, and we'd flesh them all out and mm-hmm. try to, you know, I was always trying to make records. I was in my mind when we were doing demos, I was sort of, it was almost like I was practicing for my own records. Mm-hmm. What the publisher wants, of course, is a demo that's going to show, be able to show the song to its best advantage to a record label and to an artist and kind of make them want to mm-hmm. record it, you know, but for me, it was really more selfish than that. It was more like I was just, I was just learning my way around the studio, yeah. frankly, you know. How, how, how many did you have to turn in, or what was the frequency? You know, there was, there was always a thing about quota, you know, like in, a, in everybody's publishing deal, there would be a quota, and my quota was always ridiculously low, like, you know, 12 songs a year, 20 songs a year, something really low. I actually um, am not prolific in terms of quantity. I mean, I knew lots and lots of songwriters, that would write 50 songs a year, which wow. boggles my mind. <laughs> but I wrote alone. I didn't co-write. So I, you know, I, those the songs that I wrote took longer because song, solo written songs tend to, I yeah. think. And um, 
And you know, the, the bottom line was if, if you're writing and turning in great songs and, and getting people, and people are, are recording them, nobody's looking at the quota. Nobody cares. So I'm assuming that uh, as you start getting cuts on records by very well-known artists, the, the starvation pay gets, gets upped well, a little bit. Yes, definitely. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you definitely sort of move up in the world. And, and I think the thing that happened with me is that um, there were certain artists that felt that I was kind of writing. They, they, there was an empathy there. Um, they felt sympathetic to those songs and uh, that I was writing. And there were certain artists like Martina McBride, um, Trisha Yearwood, Patty Loveless was another one that just eventually would, would come to me for songs mm-hmm. when, when they were getting ready to record would say, you know, do you have anything new? And, and that was the position that you wanted to be in because then you really had a, you know, you, you knew you had some ears on the other side that were really going to actually mm-hmm. listen. So when you get to that point, how do you, make the transition to becoming an artist? Well, that was tricky because, you know, I, I, in my mind, from the time I was picked up a guitar when I was seven, thought of myself as a person who writes songs, plays them, sings them, you know, the whole thing. And then later on, I added, you know, making records to that list. And what I didn't really realize is that my success as a songwriter, while it was wonderful, it sort of put me in a box um, with certain perception wise. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a record deal and I went and I made my first record and I went out and I did the radio tour, which is what all the labels had all the artists do at that time, which is really literally going to like all the big radio stations in the entire country. It's about six weeks of planes, you know, airplanes and and cars um, and radio station, you know, interviews and things. And what I found there was a definite sense of resistance about, you know, a sort of, the the attitude was sort of, well, so you're this successful songwriter, so now you want to be an artist? And I just am sort of appalled that, that people think of an artist as something you become. I mean, in my mind, it's something that you either are or you're not. And whether mm-hmm. you have a record deal or a sell a million records or sell two records, that's not what makes you an artist, you know. What makes you an artist is you have that need to create something, and that's you're going to do that no matter who's listening. Mm-hmm. Um, but perception-wise, it was, it, was, it was tough to overcome. And when I, fi- when I kind of figured out that, that really what was... Um, the best fit for me was being an independent artist and making my own records and just going my own way artistically as well as business wise. Um, it took me a while to overcome the public's perception of me as a songwriter. It was almost as if the songwriting part of it had, they knew about me because of that, but they really kind of didn't know what I really did. Mm -hmm. Um, so I felt like it was a, you know, it was a bit of a, a hurdle that I had to get past, yeah. but I, I, you know what the cure for that, as well as the cure for a lot of other things is touring, 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 yeah. touring. And if you do that for long enough, people kind of figure out, you know, yeah, what you do. It is interesting because out of all the cities I've lived in, Nashville is the only one where I, you feel that split where, oh, you're a songwriter, you're over here. Yeah. You're an artist, you're over here. And, mm-hmm. and especially with country music, I've seen that, but it, it happens in other genres. It's very prevalent in that town. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. 
Um, so you said the the label situation didn't go so well for you, and it really made you want to become, you know, keep control of your catalog, stay independent. What were there any specific things that that happened, or just? I felt I, the only way I can really think of to even describe it is I felt so uncomfortable all the time um, when I was signed to a this was a well while it wasn't a major label it was there was major label money behind it and mm-hmm. it was it, by all outward signs they operated exactly the same way you mm-hmm. know had i been signed to rca or cbs or whatever same amount of money same kind of pressure and and, and i loved the people that ran this label i really did but the bottom line is there are so many pressures to make something work and in order and, and it's just almost impossible for a record label even as well intentioned as they might be to um not want to shave off all the rough edges and and I just felt I felt all kinds of pressures I felt pressure to um conform enough so that we could have some success on radio because I knew if we didn't have any success on radio that was going to be the end of it anyway mm-hmm. you know um and they and they felt like they could break me at country radio, and I kind of deep in my bones knew that I wasn't a country artist. Mm-hmm. I mean, even though there was a little bit of gray area, there was a little wiggle room, but sort of right when my record came out, Shania Twain hit really big, and I kind of looked and went, okay, well, that's not going to work. For, this, this is not, you know. I mean, it was just country music took a right turn, and I took a left turn. So there was that... <coughs> And I just felt, um, I felt like I couldn't be myself somehow. I felt really constrained. I felt like I, I mean, I think, you know, at the heart of it, I'm an artist, I'm a people pleaser. I think we all are at some level. We, there's a part of us that just wants to do well, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think that the way that they wanted me to do well was not a way that I was really ultimately deeply comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I was sort of under my own steam, I mean, one of the great things that happened to me was that um, early on, my first record, while not doing well here, it did really well in England. And so I felt like I had, you know, there, there was a place I could go where they somehow were responding to what I was doing, even though it wasn't working on country radio in, in America. And I went over there early on, and I toured there, and I developed this big audience there. So it was kind of the silver lining to the cloud really for me. And it allowed me to sort of stretch out, make another record because I had some market at least where I knew Mm -hmm. I could sell it, you know, and, and grow artistically and, and then go over and tour and learn, you know, just have stage time, you know, I mean, that's a, a big thing for an artist back then you have to, it's hard to imagine now, but back then, you know, you couldn't really tour, Unless you had tour support and label support, and you know, you, mm-hmm. it, it, there wasn't, it wasn't like it is now. Yeah. I mean, it was you really had to have this whole infrastructure. So, um, just just being able to put together a tour and go play was a huge thing for me, and to play for people who were understanding what I was trying to do. Mm. So, fast forward to today, what what kind of team do you have working for you now that uh, you're independent and? Well, uh. it's funny, you know, I'm getting ready to put a new record out in um, early early next year, February of 2015, and basically 
what you do is you put together a little record label, but only maybe temporarily in some aspects. In other words, you know, I have a publicist, but probably only for a matter of maybe six to nine to 12 months during the, the, the first part of the, the record release. Um, I have distribution, CD Baby. I have, um, um, I have an assistant who helps me sort of ride herd on the whole thing. Um, I have a graphic design. I mean, I, all the pieces that a record that were, would have been in-house at a big record label are pieces that I have to put in place. Mm -hmm. But I really kind of love doing that because, first of all, because in that way I'm in control of of um, the artistic end of things and also, you know, how every angle of it, like from how the record looks to the video. Um, I just hired a video person to do the first video for the album and um so i'm you know i'm the record label head and i'm the artist and i'm everything and i'm the janitor and you know and i pay the bills i'm the accountant and that is overwhelming at times but um it is like running a little record label i mean mm -hmm. that's essentially what i'm doing mm -hmm. um but it's very gratifying i would i would say the only downside to it really is just you know i, I can't clone myself and so there there are times leading up to and right you know at the cusp of releasing a record when you just feel like oh my god i don't think i could work any harder yeah. if you know if i could stop sleeping you know <laughs> so um in all that do you do much writing for other artists or do you just if do you go through periods of just focusing on yourself and your career my my writing uh for other artists has never really per se been writing for other artists. I mean, even when I was uh, really getting songs recorded by other artists a lot and frequently, I, I never thought of it as I'm writing for Martina McBride now. I yeah. mean, I was just writing songs, whatever needed to be written, whatever was foremost in my, you know, coming out of my uh, brain, that mm -hmm. was what I would write. I have... Um, this past year or two, I've written a lot with Mary Gaucher, mm -hmm. which um, has she's been, been on the podcast. By she has, <laughs> yeah, and she and we it's, love Mary. It's yeah. been really a great thing to write with Mary. I mean, we we just we wrote uh, three songs that are on her new album, and one of them was in the TV show Nashville, and it's just been. Um, but aside from the success that we've had with those songs, it's just been. I, I love Mary, and mm -hmm. it's just been great. Uh, she's such an intense songwriter, and I love that she'll she'll go that deep with me. And um, so, I, you know, I mean, so I wouldn't say I wrote songs for Mary Gaucher, but we sat down for a summer and wrote songs together, and this is this was the result these these three songs on her album, and that's been really great. So, I just sort of take it as it comes. When I'm in the in the throes of you know of record release, I'm not doing much or touring. You know, I'm not doing much writing. I'm sort of doing some, what I would call collecting. You know, I collect little shiny bits of lyrics and things yeah. and put them away for a rainy day. But yeah. I, I definitely have to compartmentalize. It's not like it used to be when I, I wasn't touring so much and I could sort of carve out three or four hours a day to write mm -hmm. every day. That Those days are over. Yeah. Is there any song that uh, you've had cut that you wish had been on your record and not somebody else's? <laughs> You know, oddly, no. I I have a really fatalistic view of it. I just feel like they're kind of like your kids. They're they're just they're gonna be who they're gonna be. 
they're going to grow up and go out in the world. They might do something spectacular. They might not. They, but <laughs> they're all different. Um, and, you know, early on, there was this sort of mentality that if you had a song, you know, and you were an artist and, you know, you, you if you had a really great song, that you'd save it for yourself. Yeah. You know, um, now I just sort of don't. I think it's a free for all. You yeah. know, you record it, I'll record it. We'll all record it. Yeah. I think people are interested to, to hear different versions of of songs. My my new record is uh is called Blackbirds and it has two versions of the song Blackbirds that I wrote with this young uh Irish songwriter named Ben Glover. And Ben's record which is coming out in September um has a duet version with him and me singing. So yeah. there will be three versions of the same song um, by, you know, by next February that'll be out there in the world. And I think people like that. I mean, I, th I think music fans are fascinated by how songs can, you know, different versions can take on different qualities and different yeah. lives. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Plus your, your, his fans become fans of you and vice yeah, versa. I mean, I just think it's a, I, I think it's a, it was a crazy notion that we had that only one artist gets a song, you know, yeah. and, and, and that it's somehow tainted if it's been recorded before, but somehow that was sort of, that, that was the mentality in Nashville. Um, when I got there, mm -hmm. that's how it worked. Well, you wrote, uh, a blog post for us, um, titled Letters to a Young Artist, and uh, you had some great insights in there. One of the things that uh, you mentioned was about, uh, it was under the header, skill counts. And I have a line, you said, most art is the result of short bursts of inspiration followed by a long slog of grunt work. Yeah. And uh, that, that was, a, the, you kind of wrote more about that, but it just seems that a lot of folks kind of expect this magic all the time. and. Fail and feel, I, I guess, with I think why a lot of people resonated with that as artists, there's the tendency to feel excited when something's happening, but then kind of alone and kind of left behind when you're having to slog through yeah. well, the, making a record, especially. Uh, the slogging is definitely not the fun part. Um, yeah, you know, I think I mean Leonard Cohen talks about what a what a what a uh, a workmanlike uh, approach he has to take to writing and how hard he works at it. And I think if you listen to the lyrics of Leonard Cohen and how utterly inspired and perfect they are, and you realize that he really worked like notebooks full of lyrics to get the right four verses or whatever. Um, that's an insight into what's really involved. I mean, there is such a thing as inspiration, no, no doubt about it, but to me, the inspiration part is there's there's sort of these the little sort of nuggets a, a, that that have to be worked around and worked into and made into a real song and the craft part of it. That's where that comes in. And if you really really get good at it, and no, you know, every it's everyone's a journeyman. You know, everyone's. I'm still trying to figure out how the heck you do it. You know. <laughs> um, but if you really, really get good at it, the seams show less and less. You know, the inspiration versus the, the parts that are crafted and the parts that just came to you. Mm -hmm. um, I think when you get really good at it, the seams don't show because you, um, you know, you're approaching this target, which is infinitely far away. But you do get closer and closer as you get better at it. But there's there's a lot of really, really hard work. I mean, it's a job. 
mm-hmm. it's a job like like any other job like think about a you know a carpenter who makes really beautiful furniture out of pieces of wood and the piece some of the pieces of wood are perfect just the way they are and some of them have to you know give you problems and they have to be worked and reworked and it's sort of that same thing mm-hmm. um it is at some level, you know, you're you're building something, and that there's there's definite skill involved in that. Mm-hmm. What advice would you have for somebody who's interested in pursuing more of a career in songwriting these days? Like, should they do they need to move to Nashville? Is that still important? Can well, they do it from anywhere? Or I guess I it- guess it's it got it. The landscape has changed so much; it's hard for me to even know what sort of advice but it seems to me that it's still important to be in a music center and it seems to me that it's even more important now to uh to network you know to to know i mean because there are so many more artists who are co-writing their own if they're not writing their own songs they're co-writing them at least and there are a lot of producers who are in on the writing of whole albums now, uh, much more so than there were when I started. So that whole part of it, you know, um, just sort of finding a a group of people that you have some kinship with musically, you know, that seems like it's more important than ever. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I, I still think, I think back on the on the advice that that Harlan Howard, the great great country songwriter, had hits in five decades, I think. Um, you know, whenever any young songwriter would would bitch about, you know, not being not getting noticed or or whatever, not getting an award or whatever, he would say, "Well, I don't recall that you got an invitation." <laughs> you got to remember, above all, you know. Uh, there's plenty of people that would be happy yes. to take your place in line. So I think that's, you know, that's <laughs> foremost in, in my advice. That was one of the things that when I lived in Nashville, on one hand made the city extremely exciting. On the other hand, it was like, oh my gosh, there are so many guitar players. Yeah. There's so many songwriters Everybody is here to do the same thing. How am I ever going to get? You have to have some kind of crazy belief in yourself. I mean, you really do. You have to have some kind of irrational, crazy (laughs) belief in yourself. And I definitely had that. But I also had, you know, the opposite side of the coin. I mean, I remember the first time I went to hear a songwriter in Nashville right after I'd moved there. It was Don Schlitz who wrote The Gambler for Mm -hmm. Kenny Rogers. And I went to the Bluebird. And I heard Don Schlitz sing The Gambler. And first thing that I that went through my mind was, I've never actually listened to the words. This is really a great song. Mm-hmm. I really heard it. Like, having not heard it on the radio a thousand times before not really hearing the lyrics. The second thing that crossed my mind was, I should just leave. I should go back, <laughs> back, go back to Colorado. But I didn't because I had that crazy irrational belief in myself. And that's why you kind of have to have both. You have to be receptive and have enough self-doubt to improve. But you have to have enough self-confidence to, to think you, you, yeah. you can cut it, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a blessing and a curse because it's so exciting. The music is everywhere and, yeah. and you're all there in the middle of it. I think, you know, I think the key to it, a lot of it is, is find, find your tribe, you know, find your friends because that's what's going to sustain you through the, the, the rough times. And it is a brutal business, you know, but it, it, not only will it sustain you, but if you find your friends that are doing the same thing that you're doing, 
um, when one of you has some success, a lot of times it, it, they bring the others along, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think that's, that's, I think just it's on a lot of levels, it's important to have your, your peers. Mm -hmm. Well, do you have any final thoughts to, to share with us? Uh, anything about pursuing a career independently or just encouragement to those listening? I, I just think that, you know, uh, the, 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 the key, as simple as it sounds, the key, one of the keys about, you know, pursuing an independent career, and I know so many artists that are, that were kind of in the system like I was, who had a lot of fears about doing it independently, is that you can learn as you go. I mean, there's, there's not some big secret that, um, that needs to be imparted to you before you can, you can do it. I mean, I, I, I'm amazed sometimes at how m- good my instincts are at thinking about what the people that come to hear us, what our fans are going to want, you know, in terms of, you know, merch, in terms of all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm actually, I realize now I'm actually the best judge of that. Mm-hmm. And there's not some bigger, smarter, you know, record company dude that's, you know, that, that knows more than I do about the people that like our music. And if you can sort of own that, power um it'll give you the confidence to do uh what you need to do in order to manage yourself and manage your career and and strike out on your own and i I think that's i think that's what really all the encouragement artists really need well thank you so much for stopping by cd baby next time you come we'll we'll have you bring your guitar and we'll do we'll have you play and and uh, but yeah, good luck. With I want to roller skate through the warehouse. You could, you it's know, so amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice cement floor. You could roller skate in it. So I'm surprised somebody hasn't done that before. Me too. Me too. But uh, um, yeah, uh, c- good luck with the rest of the train tour and looking Thanks. forward to the new record. All right, thank Thanks. you. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of the podcast. If you want to weigh in on this episode, you can do so in the comments section at cdbabypodcast.com or you can email us at podcast at cdbabypodcast.com or if you'd like, you can call our listener line. That number is 360-524-2209. Just uh, try to keep your calls brief and to the point. It'll only give you about two minutes to leave a message, but Leave us a message there, and uh, if it's good, uh, we'll, we'll play it on the show. So we'll catch you next time. Bye. You, 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 you've been listening to the CD Baby DIY Musician Podcast, broadcasting from Portland, Oregon, USA. 